السلام عليكم وعليكم السلام How are you? Alhamdulillah. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. New background today? What's that? New background today? Yeah. So many experimentations going on around here. <laughs> yeah. My initial background, I guess, wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't as appreciated. That one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the great flag of Newfoundland, but now I've got this little thing. Alhamdulillah. <clears throat> Let's see, where were we? take some time okay yeah there's a new background someone else noticed the background too yeah uh, bismillah let's see all right let's do this bismillah so, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Nawayna ta'alamu wa ta'alimu wa ta'zakuru wa ta'zakiru wa nafa'u wa l-intifa'u wa l-ifadat wa l-istifada. Wa l-hatha ala tamasuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa dua ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khayri bitigha'a mardati allahi wa wajihihi wa qurbihi wa thawabi. Bismillah. So we left off on the obligation of social justice activism. The obligation of social justice activism. Page 31. قَالَ الْمُؤَلِّفُ حَفِظُهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَ وَنَفَلُ اللَّهُ وِيَاهُ بِيَلُومِهِ فِي الدَّارِينَ Ameen. The author has said the following. May Allah preserve him and give him and us benefit from his knowledge in this life and the next. Ameen. The obligation of social justice activism. Supporting existing expressions of justice in society, restoring individuals' God-given rights that have been denied, and interrupting factors that produce injustice are part of the Islamic faith. Although the phrase social justice activism is not explicitly used in the Quran and prophetic traditions, it resides within the framework of enjoining good and forbidding evil, which is an essential foundation of Islam. All schools within Islamic theology recognize the necessity of enjoining good and forbidding evil, and scholars have extensively discussed the criteria and manners for doing so. Thus, there is a prophetically inspired roadmap regarding the mandate for social justice activism, which constitutes a collective obligation, Fard Kifaya, 
for every Muslim community as well as an individual obligation for the Ain upon every sane post-pubescent Muslim. So, um, let me see if there's if this is going to be broken up a little bit. Maybe not. Okay. So let me, yeah, let me uh, say a little bit about this. First and foremost, believe it or not, when we were in college many, many decades ago, which was actually a joke when I started saying it, but now that I'm, now that I've said it, uh, it's almost not a joke. <laughs> uh, there really wasn't like this terminology of social justice activism wasn't really a thing. As far as I can recall, I don't remember using that terminology. I remember being involved in a lot of different things, but I don't remember that particular terminology, which is interesting just to think about because that has become the prevailing terminology. Uh, however, this idea in general of basically calling to what is good and forbidding what is bad is in that expression, which is to command what is good and to prohibit what is evil. And the Muslim works of fiqh and sometimes tazkiyah, I guess, like the ihya has a big chapter on that. But technically speaking, it's a, it's a fiqh issue. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's largely a fiqh issue. Uh, then that's, that's there in the books. What are the guidelines for it? How do you deal with it? How do you not? What are the limits? Is it fard kifay? Is it fard ayn? These are, um, there's a lot of debate around that. Uh, and it goes back to the verse. that says, let there be from you a group to that, that calls to that which is good and forbids that which is evil. And minkum actually can have many different very, uh, meanings. Min can have very different meanings in the Arabic language, not only from, as in tabi'id, but also uh, from min, I guess, from the meaning of bayan, uh, which is different than being part of it. Like not, not are they, um, how do I explain it? It's really hard to explain in English. But the idea basically is that it would be an obligation. Depending on how you, which meaning of the Arabic you use, it becomes either an individual obligation or a communal obligation. So one of the consequences of that and kind of what he gets at here is he mentions both on the an obligation that's upon the community, a collective obligation, Fard Kifaya and an individual obligation, which is Fardain. So basically like everyday regular commanding the good and forbidding the evil and explaining what's right and true and so on is the responsibility of every individual Muslim where, where they're able to do that and insofar as they're able to do that. But the higher level of that, that kind of happens, needs to happen on an institutional level, then that becomes a communal responsibility. So it's not that everyone needs to be like a specialist in evolution, but everyone needs to be able to explain the tenets of Islam, the basic tenets of Islam. Uh, and then we can have people who specialize in the more complex areas. Um, and this can happen also when it comes to, like for example, an individual may have an individual obligation to give charity to, some, to individuals that are in need. 
But at the same time, as a community, there has to be institutions that also fulfill that need. So there's that's the there's an individual obligation, there's a communal obligation side of it. I hope that makes sense. Most of our civilization building type thing is on the communal obligation side. And, um, you know, generally things that are needed for a healthy community are going to be communal obligations, meaning, in case that term is not familiar, farkifaya, what that means is that um, what that means is a group from among the believers must carry out this obligation. And the group who's not carrying it out must, um, there was a good way that it was put one time, morally and monetarily support them. Morally and monetarily support them. So like basically, I'm not gonna be the one that does X, Y, Z, but I'm gonna support the ones that do X, Y, Z. Um, and alhamdulillah that they did it for us the communal obligation is that if, if the community doesn't seek its fulfillment and handle its fulfillment, then the entirety of the community is sinful. And if a small number of people handle that responsibility, then that obligation falls from the entirety of the community. Whereas an individual obligation would be something that a person is personally responsible for. So I can't ask someone to do my salat for me. My salat is my personal individual obligation. But the communal obligation of extremely high order of having people of knowledge that are accessible um, for the community, that's a very high level communal obligation, then that, that's upon everyone. And those who are, some people will do it, some people will support it, some people will encourage it, some people will pay for it, whatever it might be, but it has to be done. And subhanAllah, you see the consequences of that. May Allah help us rectify our condition. Shame Muhzin, Wallahi. It's a saddening thing. Uh, forgive me, I'm just coming off of... Uh, this is the problem with public life, you know. <laughs> I'm just coming off a moment of being sad about this particular issue. And now I'm coming into the session and this particular issue is coming up. Allah musta'an. I'm going to keep it moving. Obligation of enjoying good and forbidding evil from the Qur'an. Allah mighty and sublime made enjoining good and forbidding evil mandatory upon the Muslim community through the imperative command. And let there be from among you a group calling towards constructive excellence. Wow, interesting translation. Enjoining good and forbidding evil. And these will be the successful ones. So that was the verse that I was referring to. Allah Almighty and sublime praises Muslims who enjoy good and forbid evil when saying, you are the best nation brought out from humankind, you enjoin good, forbid evil, and believe in Allah. You are the best people to come up. Not just because you are who you are, not because of your bloodline or your DNA stamp or whatever else it might be, your ancestry data, but because of what comes afterwards. Because you enjoin good, you forbid evil, and you believe in Allah. A, a personal reflection I had on this verse, I haven't actually, that as far as I can recall, read it somewhere. So take it with a grain of salt. Is that this verse says, you are the best people who have come out for mankind or humankind, been brought forth for humankind, for all of the people. And then when explaining that, it says, 
um, you command what is good and you forbid what is evil and you believe in Allah. And what's interesting to me about that is that, you know, normally you would say that believing in Allah is kind of like the big thing. Right, like you would kind of expect the verse to say, you're the best people brought out for, for humankind. You believe in Allah, you command what is good and you forbid what is evil. You would kind of expect it to be that way because, you know, al-iman billah is kind of a primary thing. But it doesn't, the, 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 the tartib is not that way. The order is not that way in the verse. The order in the verse is that we command what is good, we forbid what is evil, and we believe in Allah. My personal reflection on that, again, I haven't read it somewhere as far as I can recall, is that if when you're talking about being for the good of all people, the universal that's for the good of all people is commanding what is good and forbidding what is wrong. And so, meaning, if you're going to be good for all people, then that means you're good for people who don't even believe in God. And they might not care that you believe in God but they know that you're doing good, right? And so, so the verse, when it's talking about how you're the best nation to be brought out for people, then it mentions first, you command what is good and you forbid what is evil. Like, what are you doing about it? It's your money where your mouth is type thing, right? You're the best nation. Okay, I don't want to hear you're the best nation just because you have a book that's, that's pure and good and true. Fine. So what are you doing with it? Like, show me that you're the best nation. That's what someone would say. Like, okay, fine. Say we don't believe in the same thing. So what makes me, why should I believe that you're good? It should be visible that there's a consequence to this book. Uh, there's a question. Actually, let me make sure that, oh, sorry. I didn't, I, I made the chat box. Uh, so it only comments to me. You can now talk to each other if you need to. Have fun, engage, do whatever you do. Uh, Salam, Jamal. On Fard Kifaya, is there something between communal and individual obligations, such as an obligation that is acquired on the basis of having a certain skill set profession? Like a doctor having a professional obligation to provide medical services to underserved communities, for instance. Hmm. Yes. So what can happen is, um, what can happen is that someone can take upon themselves, for example, a communal obligation. And in doing so, that communal obligation becomes upon them an, an individual obligation. So uh, that's the general principle. So Take medicine as an example. So medicine is a communal obligation, the study of medicine such that human life can be preserved and upheld and so on is a communal obligation. But for the individual that goes into medicine, subhanAllah. For the individual that goes into medicine and no one else is around, and they're the one that's gonna fulfill an obligation that no one else is fulfilling. Now that's an individual obligation for them. They can't leave it. For the person who studies Islam properly and goes back and serves their community, and they may want to leave that 
and just live a simple life as a computer programmer and not be bothered by everyone and or go into engineering or whatever it might be, then they have an individual obligation, potentially. They may not, depending on where they are. Like if they went into, I don't know, like they move next to Imam Zaid, they probably don't have an individual obligation anymore or something else. But there might be other places where they have that individual obligation. They're required now <clears throat> to not give up what they're doing. So a doctor having a professional obligation to provide medical services to underserved communities. I think this kind of, I think this answers your question. I don't know. If it doesn't answer your question, please follow up with more. It's really good to see your name on the, in the chat box, mashallah, and on the participants list. Allah mighty and sublime also states, and the believing men and women are patrons of one another. Mm, I like that translation, patrons of one another. They enjoin good, forbid evil, establish prayer, give charity and obey Allah and his messenger. These will soon receive the mercy of Allah. Surely Allah is mighty, all wise. So all of these verses are mentioning this important obligation of commanding good and forbidding evil. Notice in these ayahs that enjoining good and forbidding evil are mentioned before belief in Tawheed and are the foremost description of those who have sound faith. <laughs> Almost there. Step, step towards what I was saying. Um, uh, what was I going to say about that? Okay. Further evidence from the prophetic tradition. Further evidence from the prophetic tradition. In Sahih Muslim, it is narrated that Prophet Muhammad وسلم, said, Whoever sees an evil, let him change it with his hand, and if he is unable to do so, then with his speech, and if he is unable to do so, then with his heart. But that is the weakest of faith. Okay, that was what I was going to say. One of the struggles of life is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Which means that you can have an idea that is right. And the way that it's dealt with is wrong. And then because of the way that it's dealt with, you no longer want to deal with it. And enjoining the good and forbidding the evil is one of those. Uh, well, maybe not for your generation, for my generation, enjoining the good and forbidding the evil is one of those. The concept of bid'ah was one of those. Um, because these things were so misappropriated that it became like, basically, if you're going to talk about commanding the good and forbidding the evil, the immediate image that's going to pop into one's mind is some sort of really like abrasive, illit adab, bad-mannered interaction. So that's like, that's what's going to come to your mind. That's the, that's the word association. But so then what we do oftentimes, is again, we throw the ba baby out with the bathwater. Same thing with the idea of tasawwuf or Sufism, that people will associate with Sufism, all kinds of extremism and unacceptable behaviors and ideas and practices and so on and so forth. And because of those uh, extremes that were done by groups of people, 
then the entirety of the idea will be thrown out. Um, and this applies across the board. There's so many things. You can probably think of 100 examples yourself. So there's just a lot of times when that happens. Like there's an idea, that idea is true. There's no problem with it, but there's some excesses that are associated with it. And then those excesses make it so that we have a negative connotation with that thing. Okay, so this is point number one. Point number two is commanding the good and forbidding the evil has some limitations and it has some conditions. Um, the most probably important, like there's there's some, um, try to see if he goes, one of the rules here is to ask yourself whether or not you have, like, is it in your jurisdiction? To use very modern language, is it in your jurisdiction? So I'm going to go ahead and command some particular good. Is it my business to be doing that in the first place? I'm going to go ahead and prohibit some wrong. Is it my business to be doing this in the first place? Give you a very practical example. Uh, you know, COVID home life example. It feels like every single day, there's something that my daughter, who's two, is doing. That my son, who is seven, thinks is not right. So he intervenes in it. And I tell him over and over again, son, if I am here, it is not your business to intervene. It's not your jurisdiction anymore. It is mine. <laughs> if I'm not here, you know, you're, if mom if we're, mom and dad are here, you know, fine. That's our job. But you, like, but what happens all the time? Because sometimes what happens too, and um, it's people who are lower in rank, so to speak, who step up in jurisdiction, they don't always have the full picture, right? So sometimes they make, another example where this happens all the time is in school when we're reading out loud. So say we're reading a text out loud as a class and the person who's reading makes a mistake and someone in the class goes and tries to jump in, correct the mistake. And over and over again, I tell them, look, when someone is reading, I correct the mistakes. You do not correct the mistakes. I correct the mistakes. I tell them over and over again, because maybe the teacher doesn't want to correct that student on every single mistake because they know that that student has like some sort of uneasiness about reading out loud or whatever it might be. Like there's other objectives, right? Uh, it also comes up in like tajweed. Tajweed, it happens all the time. It's like people are reading in a circle maybe and there's the sheikh who's leading the circle. Like you have no business correcting when the sheikh is there, the sheikh corrects. Because again, the sheikh, like, and don't assume just because the person wasn't corrected that they did everything correct. <laughs> you know, like, especially in Quran, sometimes the teacher will just let you read because they don't want to bother you anymore. They want to, they're, they're paying attention to like your spirit. They don't want you to get broken instead of correcting you for every single mistake. Anyways, you get the idea. So is it your jurisdiction or not? And there can be sometimes some like cultural differences in that, right? So in America, general American culture today, we don't really have jurisdiction around other people's kids, general American culture. In some pockets of the Muslim community, it can be very much not that way. You know, like I've had parents come up to me and tell me, look, our child is your child. 
whatever you want to do. I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way here. <laughs> you know, we have, we have laws that we have to follow and so on and so forth. Um, so, uh, you know, it's the point is there can be some cultural variations in that. So is it your jurisdiction was number one. Number two is you do not repel harm by causing a greater harm. You do not repel harm by causing a greater harm. So you can't be like, oh man, this person, they did this thing X, Y, Z that I have to correct. But in correcting it, you actually cause a bigger problem. Um, that's also not good. You know, sometimes there's a stand maybe to be made or whatever. And that's part of your evaluation. Maybe like the good that comes from making a stand is actually more important than the bad that comes from whatever consequence that comes from it. It's possible, but that should be part of the consideration, not just some sort of like haphazard. I'm just going to do whatever I feel like uh, this person's not making will do right type thing. Um, so that's number two. Now to come to a question that's in the chat box, is there ever a clear definition of what evil looks like here and or in general? Yes, evil is what is haram. Evil is what is haram. Ittifaq, so this is now a third condition. A third condition is that whatever it is that you're prohibiting from, it needs to be not allowed by consensus and you need to know that. And this is why some of the people of knowledge limited the role of prohibiting evil uh, to the people of knowledge. As I said, other people don't actually always know the details of what they're getting involved in. And there's a story that I always tell in this regard because, you know, personal hamaqa is really important to, uh, to, to recall. Um, some of you guys might know that word, even if you don't speak Arabic, the word ahmaq, like you're being an ahmaq. So personal individual ahmaq is sometimes important to remember. So we used to attend these lectures in Egypt with a very prominent thinker and author and writer, Allah Yerhamu, he passed away pretty recently. And um, this individual used to always pick up his drink in the middle of his lecture and drink it with his left hand. And, you know, me, I'm like coming out of Sunnaville and uh, everything is like the Hadith without any consideration for what the actual fiqh of the Hadith is. And so I know the Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I've read it so many times of the man who drank with his left hand in front or ate with from his left hand in front of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Prophet told him, eat with your right. And he said, I can't, and the Prophet said, may it be so, and his hand became paralyzed. Some authentic hadith, very well known in the books of hadith. So like, you better eat with your right, you know? So, uh, so this happened, like I see this, I'm sitting with a friend of mine who's also, you know, Talib Ilm or whatever, student of knowledge, and we're in the like front row with the Sheikh is there, and he drinks with his left hand. I tell my friend after the dars, I'm like, look, man, I don't know what the sheikh's thing is, but like, 
he needs to not be drinking with his left hand. <laughs> it's like it's the sunnah of the prophet, and you know he should know the sunnah of the prophet. Look at the self-righteous, just outrageous level of self self-righteous arrogance. I was actually reflecting recently, since there's a lot of college people in this, like the stuff we did when we were in college. You guys are like light years ahead of us. We did such horrible, disgusting things to other human beings in the name of religiosity. May Allah forgive us. So anyways, we're sitting in the session. I tell that to my friend. And he's like, look, man, don't be an idiot. Keep your mouth shut. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can. It's like, when it's the haq, it's the haq. And there's no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a whole huge hall full of people. And this is one of the most prominent people in the entire country. Like, it doesn't matter who it is. It's the sunnah. He's like, don't be an idiot. So we go back and like, happens again. Happens. Finally, you know, I'm like getting really riled up about it. But alhamdulillah, my, my good company, my friend kept me away from saying anything about it. Allah, he's like a well-known sheikh now in America. So he convinces me not to say anything. So some time passed. And I'm like, you know, if we really want to know, I start at some point I realized that, like, what are you saying? That's not the way you're supposed to do things. If you want to know, like, you don't just assume that you know the meaning of the hadith. You have to go read the commentaries on the hadith. And you have to read the books of fiqh and so on and so forth to understand. Like, you don't just assume that. So I finally went back and I read the books of hadith. And I found in the books of hadith that the majority position, actually, of the scholars is that to eat or drink with your left hand is makruh and not haram. Is makruh and not haram. Disliked, not haram. I believe it was the Hanbalis who said it was haram. And the other three said that it's makruh. I don't know if the Hanifi said makru tahrimi or tanzihi. Just this is a side point. Gets there's two there's two issues I've seen now in in comparative fiqh books that get completely debacled. For anyone who goes into fiqh and you start reading these things and like there's two major things you need to be aware of. That is that when you go and you read fiqh books, comparative fiqh books, oftentimes it'll tell you the Hanifi school said it's makru. They don't tell you which makru. Anyone who studied fiqh and studied the Hanafi madhab knows that the Hanafi madhab has two makru. One of them is basically the same as haram, the other one is not. It's the same as everyone else's makru. So you don't know which one it is. And oftentimes it will get listed in the comparative book as being uh, makru when actually it's closer to haram. When actually it's closer to haram. So this is uh, an issue. The other issue that happens a lot is tala'ub bil madhab al-hanbali. Like playing around with the hanbali madhab. To say Imam Ahmed has this opinion, he has this opinion, he has this opinion. It's always like you're hearing two or three opinions from Ahmed. But the hanbali school does have an actual position of the madhab, like every other madhab. So you have to know what that is. You can't just be like, in, in most madhabs, you can't just take an opinion that's not the fatwa position of the madhab just because you feel like it. it doesn't work that way. So whenever it says like Ahmed has three opinions, just like raise the red flag and wave or wave the white flag or something and like go ask an actual Hanbali. And that's even its own issue, but we don't need to open that one right now. I don't know why I'm saying this. Ah, is it actually haram? Is it agreed upon that it's haram? Is it agreed upon that it's haram? So person drinking with their left hand, it's not my business. First of all, it wasn't my jurisdiction. Second of all, it's not my, it's not agreed upon anyways. And third of all, I'm probably going to make more harm than good by saying it. So every every condition of commanding the good and forbidding the evil was not met. 
So is there a clear definition? Is it haram or not? If it's not haram, this is kind of like a different thing. You're not really... It's more like you you could give advice, you know, but now you're not... It's it's advice now. It's not really the same as like, you can't do this, man. Like you should... It's different than, hey, you know, it might be better to do it the other way. Those are two different things. So I'm like, person who said he has to run. May your run be safe. Inshallah. Uh, so this is now the hadith why am I saying all this because of the hadith about whoever sees evil let them change it with their hand and if not then with their tongue and then if not then in their heart right so jurisdiction matters here you don't have the me you don't have jurisdiction to change everything with your hand but you have jurisdiction maybe to speak about it you have jurisdiction maybe to definitely to not like it in your heart um, and so on Regarding enjoining the good and forbidding the evil towards general individuals, the Prophet ﷺ said, as narrated in Sahih al-Bukhari, help your brother be he a wrongdoer or one who has been wronged. The companion said, O Messenger of Allah, in this we know how to help the one who was wronged. But how do we help the wrongdoer? He replied, by preventing him from wronging others. Uh, by preventing him from wronging others. In the Sunan of Abi Dawood and Sunan At-Tirmidhi, a prophetic saying regarding enjoining good and forbidding evil towards governmental authorities is, the most virtuous struggle jihad is a word of justice with a tyrannical ruler. It's very good. A similar hadith which is sound is narrated by An-Nasai stating that the most virtuous struggle towards an unjust leader is a word of truth. So this is important also in terms of commanding good and um, forbidding evil. Someone said, what if you grew up as a lefty? Some people are lefties. Just try not to eat and drink with your left hand. You do whatever else you want. I mean, um, like even when it comes to, you know, uh, that when it comes to using the restroom and stuff, we do certain things with our left hand, not with our right, even though we're right-handed. Um, when it comes to food and drink, we should still try to eat with our eat and drink with our right hand because this is what the Prophet them encouraged. And you can do whatever else with your left hand. I know in some countries, like, I know people say like, well, I was beaten as a child because I was I would write with my right hand and they made me, or with my left hand because I was left-handed and they made me, in order to write with my right, you know, they would like be so hard on me in school and so on. And now like, why is that? This is dumb. You're right. That is probably kind of dumb. Like, I don't know why they did that. <laughs> they didn't need to do that like you didn't need to hurt the child because they write with their left hand who cares there's no hadith about writing with your left hand as far as i know Allahu alam, but as far as i know never heard anything of the sort um eating and drinking their right hand you can still try to do it inshallah might take a little bit of practice but um it's definitely doable Definitely doable do it out of love for the prophet inshallah everything will be fine when we were kids uh, or when I was a kid, I should say, instead of pluralizing it, because in this case, it's just me. Um, it's not really just me. When I was young, I, was, I played a lot of basketball. So when I guess probably like, I want to say probably when I was in like fourth grade, fifth grade, my coaches started encouraging me to use my left hand for everything. So brush your teeth with your left hand, eat with your left hand, drink with your... I wasn't a Muslim, so I didn't have an issue with the whole left hand stuff. Um, eat with your left hand, drink with your left hand, brush your teeth with your left hand, 
anything you can do with your left hand, do with your left hand because they wanted me to be able to, you know, like dribble with left hand properly, shoot with the left hand properly, whatever, um, when I was right-handed. And, you know, you pick it up and it develops, especially when it comes to eating and drinking. That's easier than shooting. Uh, consequences of neglecting of enjoining good and forbidding evil. Allah mighty and sublime speaks of the fate of those from before who neglected their obligation of enjoining good and forbidding evil. Cursed are those who disbelieved from the children of Israel from the tongues of Dawood and Isa, the son of Maryam, for that which they disobeyed and transgressed. And they did not prohibit among themselves evil, which they did. Indeed, it was vile, which they did. So, so the Qur'an specifically, Allah is specifically mentioning in the Qur'an here, people who neglected to command what is good. This is a, this is a big issue. Um, it's a really big challenge for us now. And the, I think in the American Muslim community, there's a lot of challenge around this now. Because of two things coming together. One is that history of overdoing the commanding of good and forbidding of evil, uh, and which still is there, like especially among certain camps and certain people and whatever, it's like they always have an opinion on everything. Uh, but that combined with the individualism of American culture makes it really tough. You know, like in America, you don't tell people what to do. So... On top of it, you know, you put those two things together and it becomes very much like you, you can very quickly end up with a community that is not pushing one another to good. Um, it's very active in, in every sort of area other than encouraging each other to do what needs to get done. Habib Abdullah ibn Hussein ibn Tahir, may Allah sanctify his spirit, stated in his treatise regarding the recalcitrance of the tongue that it is sinful to be silent regarding enjoining good and forbidding evil without a valid excuse. That can be sinful, actually. When there's something that needs to be said, you must say it. Allah forgive us. When there's something that needs to be said, Excuse me, you must say it. Habib Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Haddar, may Allah sanctify his spirit, also said, A person who dispenses with the acts of enjoining good and forbidding evil shares with the disobedient in their sins. And being pleased with disbelief is a form of disbelief. If Allah is disobeyed in the East and you are in the West, you must nonetheless forbid evil according to one of the recommended methods as much as you are able. Okay. What are those methods? Those methods are what's in the hadith, most likely. I'm not familiar with the text, actually. But most likely, those methods are what's mentioned in the hadith, of by the hand or by the tongue or in the heart. Now, one of the things that we do sometimes is when we're not able to change it with our hand and we're not able to change it with our tongues, what we do is instead of hating it in our heart, we stop feeling anything about it. And that's very dangerous, actually. We have to calibrate our hearts actually to dislike what Allah dislikes and dislike what the Prophet them taught us to dislike, even if there's nothing that we can do about it. The standard must remain. 
that this is still not acceptable. Allah Almighty and Sublime discusses the punishment given to the wife of Lot who assisted the men of Sodom in open sexual transgression, even though she did not partake in their actions. Allah sets forth a parable of those who disbelieved, the wife of Nuh and wife of Lut. They were under two servants from among our righteous worshippers, but they both betrayed them, their husbands. So they, Nuh and Lut, benefited them not against Allah. Thus it was said, enter the fire along with those who enter. So she wasn't actually the transgressor here directly in the act, but she um, assisted. She assisted in sin. Regarding the learned leaders among the children of Israel who neglected their duties, Allah the Most High states, Why did not their rabbis and doctors of law forbid them from sinful assertions and devouring the forbidden? Indeed, evil are their works. You know, sometimes, this is actually one of the things that um, one of the benefits of teaching from texts and teaching from like full works rather than just giving talks on whatever comes up is that they allow actually a teacher to speak more easily about things that are normally difficult to speak about. So in any given place or time, there's going to be things that are haram, that are difficult to speak about because the people might not actually, um, it just might be kind of a sensitive issue. We're going to come to one of them in the book. Um, but... If you're doing a text, then you have to cover the section. When you get to the section, you get to the section. You can cover it with whatever tact and um, and whatever that's needed, but it, it gives you an excuse to go there. The Hanbali scholar Sayyid Abdul Qadir and Jilani, may Allah sanctify his spirit, Amin, said regarding this ayah that their scholars, jurists, and cantors, meaning their reciters, did not prohibit them from obscene language, eating the forbidden and acting in recalcitrance. According to Al-Bukhari and Muslim, the mother of the believers, Uman Hakim Zainab bint Jahsh, may Allah be pleased with her, narrated that the Prophet came to her while alarmed and said, There is no deity but Allah. Woe unto the Arabs from mischief that has come near. An opening has been made of a day in the wall of Gog and Magog, similar to this, making a circle with his thumb and index finger. She said, O Messenger of Allah, shall we be destroyed even though there are pious persons among us? He replied, Yes, when the wicked increase. When the wicked increase. And that's tied in also in meaning to what's coming next. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq said, according to a sound narration in Sunan Abi Dawood, Sunan al-Tirmidhi, and Sunan al-Nasai, O people, surely you recite this ayah, O you who believe, take care of your own souls. No harm can come to you from one who is astray when you are guided aright. But surely I also heard the Messenger of Allah them saying, Surely people, when they see a wrongdoer and do not take him by the hand to attempt to stop his evil, Allah will soon punish all of them. So the truth has to be upheld. 
In Isan narration, Hulayfa ibn al-Yaman an, relayed that the Prophet said, This is a scary hadith. By him in whose hand my life is in, you will either enjoin good and forbid evil, or Allah will certainly soon send his punishment upon you. Then you will make supplication, but it will not be accepted. Then you will make dua, but it will not be accepted. Because you didn't command the good and forbid the evil. That's how serious it is. The dua won't be accepted. So what then? It's a problem. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa karamallahu wajha narrated similarly that those who desist from enjoining good and forbidding evil will have the worst of the people as authorities over them. Then they will supplicate to Allah without being answered. It is said that Allah the Most High revealed to Yusa, Joshua bin Nun, may Allah be pleased with him. Surely I will send destruction to 40,000 of the best of your people and 70,000 of the worst of them. He said, oh my Lord, these are the worst, but what about the best? The Most High replied, surely they were not angry with my anger, and they confided in them and drank with them. But they didn't put things in the right place. They didn't put things in the right place. And sometimes there's injustices that happen within the community on a communal level that people don't really like give them their due, you know. Um, God, I really shouldn't open this door. I'm not going to walk down this door with examples, but there are many things that happen in the community that are unacceptable and are great wrongs. And we don't write them. And then we get upset that things aren't going the way that they we want them to go. People are disenfranchised. People don't care. This and that. Well, I mean, like, you let them pray in a closet for 20 years with, with like, no respect or honor or dignity, and then you're upset. How about you fix the injustice? Yeah. The issue of social justice activism has spiritual import and consequences attached to it. When a community has persons devoted to devoted to enjoining good and forbidding evil in the society, divine blessings are extended to it as in other acts of worship and assistance can manifest with Allah's permission. Likewise, when a community ignores this endeavor and individuals abandon this religious responsibility, just as in other duties, severe consequences will eventually reach that community and judgments in the hereafter, for individual persons will be given according to the limitless wisdom of Allah, mighty and sublime, and his knowledge of those persons' capacities. Hmm. We kind of need to keep going, even though we haven't gotten very far. Okay. Prerequisites for an enjoining good and forbidding evil. Oh, good. There's a chapter on it. Excellent. And he mentions things that I didn't mention, which is very good. Mm. Very good. This section looks very good. Okay. 
prerequisites for an enjoining good and forbidding evil. As in any endeavor in life, there are certain prerequisites which need to be met before doing anything that has quality and consistency. This same standard applies to enjoining good and forbidding evil, which is the foundation of social justice activism from an Islamic paradigm. As there is an order of accordance that will be articulated in this chapter, it will also touch upon one item specific to the American context. Here we go. Checking intentions. Checking intentions. The foundation of all matters in Islam starts with having pure intentions. When it comes to activism guided by spirituality, its participants must always renew their motives. The social justice actions and campaigns are done for the pleasure of Allah, and not firstly prioritizing what may or may not be pleasurable to people. The extent of Allah, mighty and sublime, accepting works and blessing them are firstly determined by the motives behind those works. Prophet Muhammad stated as narrated in Bukhari and Muslim actions are but by their intentions and everyone will get but what they intended. Intend. Whoever makes migration for Allah and his messenger, then his migration is for Allah and his messenger. But whoever migrates for worldly gain or to marry a woman, then his migration will be for the sake of whatever he migrated for. A Shafi'i radiallahu anhu gave the opinion that this hadith makes up one third of knowledge and Ahmed ibn Hanbal, may Allah be pleased with him, stated that this saying contains one-third of the foundation of al-Islam. A lesser graded tradition which a, with a correct meaning says, the intention of a believer is better than his action, but the action of the hypocrite is better than his intention. Allah, that's a beautiful statement. That's a beautiful statement. The intention of a believer is better than his action, but the action of the hypocrite is better than his intention. Wow, that's good. So, you know, has to be the question of why has to be there. Why am I doing this? Am I doing it to blow off steam? Am I doing it because I'm frustrated? Am I doing it because I don't have anything else to do? Am I doing it because I want Fulana or Fulana to like me? Am I doing it because I want to feel like the popular kid? Or am I doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? It's a very important question. Those engaged in the endeavor of activism, be they, be they religious leaders or laity, maybe the religious leader. Am I doing it because... I want to feel powerful and I want to like lord over the people and I want them to point at me and say, oh, look at this person. He's so dedicated. She's so dedicated. She's so knowledgeable. Look at them. They understand the context, whatever it might be. Or is it for Allah? It could look the same, by the way. It might not change, but the intention changes it. Those engaged in the endeavor of activism, be they religious leaders or laity, must be vigilant that actions done in the name of social justice are not merely public relations stunts, nor throwing Islamic beliefs to the wayside to be accepted by the status quo. During the period in which the people of the book resided in Al-Medina and traveled to it for commerce, Allah revealed, never will all of the Jews nor Christians be pleased with you until you follow their way. Say, surely the guidance of Allah is his guidance. And if you follow their desires after which knowledge has come to you, there will not be from Allah a protector nor a helper. So this is, you know, it's, you're not always going to make everyone happy. It's not the point. The point is to uphold what Allah wants us to uphold. Stay on your post. Stay on your post. In his tafsir of the verse, Sayyid Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, qadrasallahu sirrah, said that regarding the words, his guidance, it is al-Islam. So follow it in order that you will be guided aright. 
Hence, tossing out clear matters within the faith that have been agreed upon by consensus for over 1,400 years, or seeking to normalize that which is forbidden under the banner of gaining acceptance in the social justice world, will take those engaged in activism further away from the path of success. In fact, it may be unlikely that the majority of those who reject Islamic creed and morality will ever, will ever fully accept Muslim activists unless divine injunctions which they disagreed with are cast to the side. This reality should be understood operationally and not just dismissing it as a pessimistic vantage point. So what is he saying? He's saying that if something's part of Islam, it's part of Islam. You don't change it. And definitely don't change it in thinking that you're going to like make people all of a sudden be on your side. Because later on, they're not going to be on your side about something else too. And if you can't have your own way, have honor with it and respect and dignity with it, then you can't have then you can't have your way. You just might as well take someone else's way. One by one, it's going to be gone. Summoning moral courage it takes courage and internal fortitude to work for change, especially when the change being worked towards is unpopular among the status quo, and or goes against policies of governmental authorities. Courage is a virtue which emanates from the heart, not merely from the mind. Moreover, courage is not recklessness, nor is cowardice the total absence of fear. Very important. Courage is not recklessness. Cowardice is not... Uh, cowardice... Where did it go? Is cowardice the total absence of fear? Meaning like just because... You know, you have a little bit of fear doesn't mean you're a coward. Just because you have a little bit of restraint doesn't mean you're not having courage. Actually, you know, it's not courage to just act like an idiot. And it's not, it doesn't mean you're a coward because you're afraid. And usually if it's a real thing, you're going to be afraid a little bit. Unless you've really been tested. I mean, like maybe you have some serious being tested. But most people, when they're up against something that's a little bit more difficult, they're going to be a little bit uh, afraid, and that's okay. Courage is working past fears towards what needs to be done while being mindful and cautious. There were prophets who overcame fears to confront challenges that needed to be faced. Allah says, And remember when your Lord called Musa, go to an oppressive people, the people of Fir'aun. Will they not be regretful? regardful? He said, My Lord, surely I fear that they will reject me and my breast straightens, and my tongue does not express well. So send with me Harun. Besides, they have a charge against me, and I fear they may kill me. He, Allah, replied, Nay, both of you go with our signs. Surely we are with you, listening. So it mentions here that Musa had some apprehension. When Allah commanded Musa to go to Fir'aun, Musa knew of Fir'aun's political power and acts of brutality. He confessed those concerns to Allah. He confessed them to Allah and made a supplication before continuing on. Frequent supplication of placing trust in Allah and remembering that he is the best protector is a way of strengthening resolve within the heart. So what is one of the ways of strengthening resolve within the heart? To frequently make dua and turn it over to Allah. Some suggested supplications to invoke often, especially at the times of Fajr, Maghrib, or during any time in which challenges need to be faced. Our Lord, shower, uh, shower upon us patience, make our feet firm, and help us over the people who reject faith. 
faith. Rabbana afrigh alayna sabran wa thabit aqadamana wa ansurna ala al-qawm al-kafirin. Allah is sufficient for us and he is the best protector. Hasbunallahu wa ni'mal wakil. Our Lord shower upon us patient and have us die as those in a state of Islam. Uh, I don't know that one. Uh, oh Allah, surely I seek refuge with you from anxiety, grief, helplessness, laziness, cowardice, stinginess, overpowered by debt, and subjugated by man. This is one of the du'as of the Prophet ﷺ in the morning and evening. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazin wa min al-ajzi wal-kasal wa min al-jubni wal-bukhl wa min ghalabat al-dayni wa qahrin rijal. That's the one. Okay. So we'll start here next time. Acquiring knowledge of good and evil. Acquiring knowledge of good and evil. What's a good place? I mean, it's not necessarily the best place to stop, but you have to stop somewhere. So put a little dot there. If you have any comments or questions or things you'd like to share, please feel free to do so. I guess we'll stop here then. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-lazina amanu wa aminu al-salihat. Wa tawasu bil-haqi wa tawasu bil-sabr. Jazakumla khair. Inshallah we'll see you all next time. Jazakumla khair. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.